If you have your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter one. I'm just going to kick in and read it. There's a lot of text today and I want to get through it all. So let me just start reading. It's on the back of your bulletins if you want to follow along. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem, laid siege to it. And the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief, uh, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family from nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he had drank. And they were to be trained for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judaites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But the chief eunuch named them these names. He gave the name Belshazzar to Daniel and Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. And Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. And God granted Daniel the kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, uh, my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance to the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food from them uh, and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. God gave these four young men's knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And at the end of that time, that the king had said to present them to the chief eunuch. He presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them among all of them. No one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. There's a lot to be said there, and we'll break it all down. But let me catch you up with where we started last week. Last week, we talked about this idea that exile, which is where Daniel and his friends find themselves. Exile is not hindrance. But that carries the assumption that if we are going to live in exile, which we talked at extent last week. So if you missed it, you may want to go check the podcast. If we're going to live in exile, that we have to do so correctly and faithfully for it to be this way. So the question we asked is, how do exiles influence the culture they're living in while not being influenced by the culture? And to break that down over the next two weeks, we're going to look at this through Daniel chapter one and Daniel chapter two. And we're going to approach it through two key words. So the idea that to be influenced by the culture, we'll use the word compromise. That compromising is being influenced by the outside culture within But to influence the outside culture, we'll use the word calling. 
So that's going to be our two terms we look at over the next two weeks. Compromise and calling. Compromise is being influenced by. Calling is going out and influencing. So today, just to kind of give you the overall point of the direction we're going to go, it goes something like this. Resolved exiles cannot compromise. That's what we're hitting at. Resolved exiles cannot compromise. Now, the thing that makes that a little bit complex is that compromise is not always a bad thing. Deciding on where to eat with your spouse or what movie you're going to watch for family movie night. If you've been in a family with more than three people or two people even, you know that sometimes you've got to have compromise to get through. Otherwise, you're just going to sit there and starve to death. You've got to find ways to agree and go out to eat. So what is it that makes compromise safe and good when the only thing on the line is just a meal or a movie, but not good when it comes to compromising our faith? And I think the question lies a lot on what is on the line when you don't have a lot riding on it, when you don't have a lot on the line, compromise is not that big of a deal. But when there's a lot riding on the compromise, all of a sudden it becomes far more intensive and far more meaningful. So the best example I can think to give is uh, shortly after I moved here, I'd struck up a really good friendship uh, with a guy that graduated from Eastern um, last December. And uh, he and I would go golf together. He had previously played baseball uh, for ENMU for the Greyhounds. And then after he was done with that, he and I would go golf. So the first day we had ever decided to go golf, we uh, set a tee time for Farwell. And we took off just small course, not very crowded. And uh, I met him at Farwell and he gets out of his car and he pulls out a baseball bat. And he goes, hey, do you care if instead of using golf clubs today, I just like throw up the golf ball and hit it with a baseball bat? Now, that's kind of not just against golf etiquette. That's like full on against the rules of golf. You're not allowed to do that. But here's the thing. It was just he and I. There was no one else on the course. I was like, whatever. You know, just throw up the ball and hit it with your baseball bat. That's fine. And I will say I did beat him in golf. It was just way closer than what I would have ever wanted it to be. So we... (laughs) We won't talk about that, right? There's nothing on the line, whatever. Use your baseball bat and play golf. If that's what you really want to do, compromising the rules of golf in that situation just isn't that big of a deal. But compare that to a guy I knew in college who played on the college golf team. And while I never got the full description of the details, apparently uh, during one of the tournaments, he decided to give him the, himself the courtesy of a do-over during the tournament play. So he hit a shot he didn't really like, and he decided to drop another ball and hit another shot, thinking no one had seen him do it. The problem was the guy he was paired up with saw him do it and reported it to the officials, and he was disqualified from the tournament. Not only was he disqualified from the tournament, but he cost the school the victory that they otherwise may have won during that tournament. They were classified as last place. And then when he got back to school, he proceeded to lose his spot on the golf team and his scholarship. It's quite a bit on the line, right? Turns out when you compromise the rules of golf, when there's something on the line, it's actually a lot to be paid for that. Pretty poor decision. So what does all of this have to do with compromise in the church today? I think the problem we sometimes face against this backdrop of our ever more secularizing culture is that we don't always fully grasp what's on the line. That we don't understand how much there is to be lost or gained depending on how we interact with the world around us. But this wasn't the case for Daniel and his friends. For Daniel and his friends, having lost everything, lost their home, lost their family, lost their culture, being drug away to a city not their own, they they understood that the only thing grounding them is their faith in the God of Israel. 
That this was not just some flippant concept, easily discarded for the sake of comfort and ease, but it was the means of life itself. And it leads to this incredible story in Daniel chapter one of four teenage boys resolving not to compromise. So let's walk through this just kind of verse by verse. And I will go somewhat quickly. So don't worry if you're looking at this thing and you're never getting through it. Well, we may not, but we'll try Verse one, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. At this point in the ancient world, there's three major powerhouses. Israel at one point was a major powerhouse under the kingship of David and Solomon. But after Solomon dies, the city goes into turmoil. The the country goes into turmoil. There's a civil war and it splits the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And they lose quite a bit of their military power in that split. So at the same time, raising up around them are three major nations. To the north of them is the nation of Assyria. To the east is the nation of Babylon. And to the south is the nation of Egypt. So as time goes, Assyria comes down and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And shortly after the northern kingdom is conquered, Babylon sets their targets on Assyria. So Babylon goes and they conquer Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And all of a sudden the Babylonian empire becomes the big bad empire of the world. And the Babylonians decide that they want to set their targets toward Egypt to go and conquer what Egypt has to offer. But there's a country or there's a city capital mainly standing in the way of them getting to Egypt. It's the city Jerusalem. So Babylon decides that the best way to take Egypt is to first to go in and take Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. But it's worth noting, verse 2, that the Lord handed King Jehoiakim over, uh, of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels from the house of God. It reminds us that it's not just big, bad Babylon that God looked away for a few minutes and thought, oh, man, I forgot to check in on Israel. And he comes back and it all has fallen into chaos. But it's actually something that God has been in the works of for years now, because for hundreds and hundreds of years, God has been sending prophet after prophet telling these people, repent, turn back to me. Otherwise, you're going to be put in exile. Calamity is going to fall. You need to turn and trust me. And over and over again, they reject these prophets. And so finally, God removes his hand of protection. Babylon comes in and it's the very hand of God that delivers them over. We talked about this last week, but I want to do a little bit more of this talk of the breakdown of Babylon. Because sometimes I think when we picture some country like Babylon, we picture this, you know, military power of barbaric tendencies and notions that they were just they were just too dumb to know any better. So they acted out of violence because they just weren't smart enough. But you need to understand that's not Babylon. Yes, they are incredibly militant and powerful, but they are the epicenter, the pinnacle of ancient civilization, art, literature, technology, architecture. In fact, uh, to this day, there's a museum in Berlin called the Pergamum Museum that has a replica of what's called the Ishtar Gate. It, it looks like this. I put a picture up here for you. And this was the gate. It's reconstructed to be the very gate that Babylon had as its main gate when you come in. And you can see just the towering size and the architecture of it, the, the blue and the designs of animals put in it. I mean, when you walk into Babylon, be it as a free citizen or like Daniel and his friends as slaves, you're walking through this gate, recognizing the power of this country over you, that they have everything they can need to run the world. And I show you that to demonstrate that Babylon was far more than just this military power. They held architectural brilliance and wealth. So they're not just some bully. They're this ridiculously resourced, ridiculously powerful and ridiculously intelligent country with means of influence. 
And now that city has set itself directly against the ways of Yahweh, Israel's God, and conquers the very city of God. And then they carry away the articles of worship from the temple. That Nebuchadnezzar carried them into the land of Babylon to the house of his God and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. In the ancient world, your military prowess is in direct connection to the power of your nation's chief deity. So part of conquering another nation was your God conquering that other nation's God. And to demonstrate that, when you lay siege to a nation, you would go into their holy place, their temple, and you would typically remove their idols. Of course, Israel does not have idols in their temple, but instead Nebuchadnezzar goes in and removes the holy furniture and the altars and things like that. And you would transport them back to your God's temple as a way of saying these things bow before the power of my God. Nebuchadnezzar did not just see himself as Israel's conqueror. He sees his God, Marduk or Baal, as the indisputable winner, heavyweight champion over Israel's God. And so he sets all of this into his thing. And then he orders that the chief eunuch bring some of the Israelites from the royal family into nobility. Again, Babylon is incredibly intelligent. They're not just barbaric. They implement this strategy, this practice of selecting out the cream of the crop from Israel and the other nations that they had conquered. And the attempt was to assimilate them and then put them back in leadership over the other exiles so that the people exiled away would assimilate into Babylonian culture. The means by which they were going to do this in verse five is that they're going to assign them daily provisions from the royal food where they would drink the food or eat the food and drink the wine that the king drank. They're to be trained for three years uh, in this three year cultural assimilation program. And then they're going to have their names changed. Now, there's a whole lot more at play here than just, you know, this isn't just the namesake of the person on the phone that you can tell that's trying to help you with your computer. You knows from India, but then they say, hey, my name's Tim. You're like, I, I know your name's not Tim, but none of us in here can pronounce your name. So they go. With, that's not what's happening here. This is far more deep than than that. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar struggled to say the name Daniel and Belshazzar just rolled off the tongue a little bit easier for him. Remember, in the ancient world, your name had way more than a label. It was just. It wasn't just some string of syllables thrown together that's how you know where you get your drink at Starbucks. Your name in the ancient world is an actual word. It's given to you at birth to set your particular identity, a moniker to denote the truest thing about you. So check, check this out. And I won't go line by line, but I have a little chart to show you of what's happening through these names. So we start with the name Don, Daniel or Don E.L. So Don is the Hebrew word for judge or Dan. E would be kind of is in some form. And this is a little bit loose because it's difficult translating to English, but it'll work. And then L is short for Elohim, which is the word God. So Daniel means God is judge. Now, in the Babylonian world, just full disclosure here, the Babylonian names are a lot harder to translate because we have a lot more resources to translate Hebrew than we do ancient Akkadian languages or Mesopotamian languages. So this is somewhat, if you Google it, you'll find some different things. But this is, I think, the most accurate realization. Bel would be the name of their god. It's another term for Marduk. And then Tashaz would be protect and Tsar is king. So Daniel's name goes from God is judge to Bel protects the king. You go to Hananiah. Hananiah's name ends with Yah, which is short for Yahweh. And then Hanai or Hanan is gracious or merciful. Yahweh is merciful. Yahweh is gracious. His name gets changed to Shadrach, which Shad is command. And Ak is short for the moon god in Babylonian deities, Aku. 
So he goes from Yahweh is gracious to under the command of a coup. Mishael really gets it bad. His name starts with me, who, and then what is or like. So his name comes out to be who is like God. Again, El, Elohim. And so they take it and they just pull the L off the end and they shove Ak, short for Aku. So his name goes from who is like God to who is like Aku. And Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, goes to Abed, which is servant of Nego, which is a shortened way or a Hebrew way of the god Nabu in that. Do you see what Babylon is doing? That this isn't just like, oh, we don't like those names. Let's give you some new names. They are from the very core of the identity of these teenage boys, trying to transition them from Hebrew to Babylonian. They're fabricating and changing the core of their DNA. This is a deeply oppressive move to replace their Hebrew names with a Babylonian identity. Then after renaming them, Babylon offers Daniel and his friends the most powerful city. They, they offer everything the most powerful city in the world has to offer, food and drink. And, and some commentaries will even come in and say that there may have even been more in terms of like companionship and things that that city would have offered like that. And these teenagers, they're refugees. They're starving, deprived of comforts and luxuries, pulled from their own city and hometown and family, now offered the world. Everything is set up for them to give in and to change from Hebrew to Babylonian. And then we come across verse eight, which is one of the key verses. It might, in fact, be the very key verse of this passage. Daniel determined. Now, that word determined is a good translation. I like it, but I really like the word resolved there. If you have a different translation, like the ESV, it might say Daniel resolved. So I'm going to use that one. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. With the ever imposing pressure to compromise, Daniel resolves. Daniel and his friends resolve not to compromise this teenage boy stares down the most powerful nation eye to eye and says, I'm not doing it. And then we get to verse nine and there's this crazy little nod in verse nine that says God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Now, wait a minute. According to Daniel, where is God? According to Daniel chapter one, verse two, the the God of the Israel, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, he's he's not there present doing anything. He's locked into the temple of Marduk, laid bare in front of the Babylonian God. And all of a sudden, the author of Daniel, probably Daniel himself, looks at him and says, just because the temple was destroyed and the articles were led into the Babylonian temple, I'm telling you, Yahweh was still active. God was still moving. In the face of destruction and exile, my God still moved, granting compassion and changing things. Where is Daniel's God? He's not defeated. He's intentionally intervening through Daniel's faith, resolved on Daniel's behalf. So Daniel proposes a little test in verses 10 through 14. Now, just heads up. This isn't some like divine weight loss plan that if you follow the same plan that Daniel followed, you'll lose weight. Although I will say, if you go 10 days with just eating vegetables and drinking water, you might lose weight. But that's not what this is for. That's not what this is about whatsoever. This is a simple test where Daniel chooses to entrust God rather to trust the king. He refuses to embrace the influence of Babylon. He refuses to compromise. And instead, he finds credit to do what he feels is best. And things work out really well. Verse 15 through 16, at the end of 10 days, they look better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. It all works out. 
And again, God blesses the faithful resolve of Daniel and his friends, endowing them with the ability to learn and to understand. I love this. Verse verse 20. Jump over to verse 20. It says this. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted about, he found them ten times better than the magicians and mediums of their entire kingdom. After three years of study, God grants them the wisdom to study the literature and wisdom of the Babylonians. Daniel and his friends graduate with a Ph.D. in Babylonian cultural studies. And understanding the Babylonian culture and literature better than most of the Babylonians understood their own culture. They look at it and they resolve to avoid compromising. Now, notice this. Avoiding compromise does not mean that they separate themselves entirely outside the culture. It doesn't mean that Daniel and his friends looked around. They said, we really would like to go start a homeschool compound on the outskirts of Babylon. That would really help us. I'm not downing homeschool whatsoever, but that's not their plan. They are in the heart of Babylon. They are locked in and loaded by the very pressure of the king himself. And they look it in the eyes and they say, we're still not going to do what you want us to do. We are resolved. Then we fast forward in verse 21 and we get this kind of fast forward button in the text that just says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's a little phrase that says, Daniel lived in this situation 70 years. Almost the entirety of his life, he never got to go worship at the temple. He never got to go see what it was like to be living in Jerusalem where his ancestors grew up. Instead, he is locked in the intrusive, influential city of Babylon. So with all of that in mind, I want to see if I can just bring this together through this lens that we started with today. Compromise is culture's attempt to influence you. And just so you know, culture is trying really hard to influence you. It's really not that hard to see anymore. It used to feel a little bit more under the radar, but now anytime that you turn on the TV and see a commercial, or it's, it's kind of just in your face now. Culture is attempting to influence us, but resolved exiles cannot compromise. But the key question for us looking at Daniel 1 is, How? How do these four teenage boys in the most impressionable moments of their life resolve to faithful resilience in the face of a pressure almost none of us could even claim to know? I mean, especially given that the whole reason God has removed his hand from the protection of Jerusalem is because for centuries at this point, the majority of people in Jerusalem have been living in direct rebellion to their covenantal relationship with God. How on earth did these four teenagers get it when no one else did? And how can they stay resolved to it when they don't even have the comforts of their culture? I think there's two, two main things that I want to point out here. And I have a slide for these two things, Kelsey. One is what I'm going to call key preparation. And two is what I'm going to call intentional determination. So let's talk about those key preparation. Now, to answer this, we have to do a little bit more historical analysis. So if you're like, Philip, I'm so tired of the history lesson today. Tune out for a few minutes. I'll tune you back in. But I think this is really important to understand what's going on here. Verse one tells us that uh, all of this happens. Nebuchadnezzar takes over in the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign. So that would imply that Daniel and his friends have been living uh, in the royal family, would have been pretty heavily influenced by the king especially as children growing up in Jerusalem. But let's be honest, three years of influence isn't all that much. So Jehoiakim's influence probably isn't the key influencer of their life. Before Jehoiakim, there was a guy named Jehoah, uh, 
sorry, Jehoahaz. That's how you say his name. If you uh, want to read about this, you can look it up in Second uh, Kings 24 in that area. But Jehoahaz wasn't all that great. In fact, the Bible says that Jehoahaz was 23 years old, years old when he became king and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight and Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath to keep him from reigning in Jerusalem. Three months, probably not all that influential. So then we have to ask, well, who was the king before this guy? And it's a king you probably know. His name was Josiah. Before Jehoahaz, uh, Jehoahaz was king, there was a guy named Josiah. And this is where all the pieces start to fall together. Because part of Jehoiah's, Josiah's, man, there's too many Jeho, Jehoahaz. Before Josiah's kingship, or during Jehoiah's, Josiah's kingship, really key part of his thing was raising money to help clean out and repair the temple that his dad and his granddad had just essentially left abandoned and in disarray. So during this cleanup and repair, they find a copy of the Torah that for generations no one had ever read. And so um, Josiah has this Torah read aloud to him, and it just breaks him. And he realizes they've not followed even remotely what they were supposed to. So he leads this sweeping revival where the temple is cleansed and idols are demolished and Passover is reinstated. So is there some sort of lineup between that event and the events in Daniel chapter one? And here's the cool thing. The Bible actually can provide this for us. So I want to piece some things together for you. Israel was really good at keeping record of their kings, hence first and second kings in the books that we read like that. Um, so while the dates may not be exact, we can pretty safely determine when kings came to power within Israel and we can look through that. So we know that King uh, Jehoiakim comes to power around 609 B.C. So I got a little timeline for you. 609 B.C. And by the way, this is B.C. So the numbers go backwards than normal, just so you understand that. And then we see in Daniel chapter one that it's the third year of his reign that Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem. So that's 606. Now, let's make a couple assumptions here because that helps us kind of get to the, some things. We know Daniel and his friends were probably 13 to 15, somewhere in that area. But just for the sake of argument, they were three years in this Babylonian trainment. Let's say after those three years, um, we'll just call them 15 years old when they're captured somewhere in that area which would then put their birth at somewhere in the vicinity of 621 B.C. Daniel and his friends are born 621 B.C. Now, we can go back to Josiah. And we know that Josiah takes the throne in 640 B.C. at eight years old. It's one of the notable things of his kingship that he's an eight-year-old king. And that he starts the temple cleansing process 18 years later. So he starts the temple cleansing process in 622 B.C. He implements revival Either the year of or the year before, but right around the exact same point, Daniel and his friends are born. That's substantial. That, that really, really matters because according to the biblical timeline, Daniel and his friends are born right at the start of Josiah's revival. They are shaped and formed by a leader whose faith was not just some cultural norm synchronized to the world around him, but a leader whose faith was birthed in repentance and developed through practice, which creates this little time pocket, this perfectly orchestrated bubble that forms four young boys to stand resolved in the face of extreme pressure as teenagers. In the New Testament, we call this discipleship. It actually just turns out Daniel and his friends were discipled really well. Because they grew up in a Jerusalem functioning as Jerusalem was supposed to. So this key preparation 
was that Daniel and his friends grew up being discipled by the very things that they were supposed to be taught. And then you couple that with what I'm going to call intentional determination. Now, when I say intentional determination, I don't mean they tried really, really hard. It's not like they're resolved with some concoction of grit mixed with stubbornness. They were intentional in how they lived their lives in the face of everything Babylon throws at them. Babylon seeks to isolate them from their families and their culture. They stand together in solidarity. Babylon tries to appeal to the cravings of teenage starving refugees. And they set the bar even higher for themselves, saying not only are we not going to eat the food, but we're not even going to drink the wine. Just heads up. I know in a Baptist church, wine's a little bit taboo. I get it. In ancient Israel, wine was not a problem. It was very common. It was even common for 15-year-olds to drink. It probably wasn't the same as the wine we have today. But nonetheless, wine is not like that they couldn't drink wine and it was a sin. No, it was we don't want to participate in what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing. So we're actually setting the bar even higher. And it's not some legalistic idea of no one else can do this because we don't want you to. It's in the face of the situation we're in, we're actually going to resolve to have our moral standard even higher than what's required. So they stand on that. Babylon throws them in a three-year intensive indoctrination camp. They graduate summa cum laude of knowing the content better than anyone else, and they still don't buy in. Babylon literally tries redefining them, re-identifying them, and they don't skip a beat holding to their God-given identity. No, right in the heart of Babylon, these four young men... They hold to the same standard of practice that they would have in Jerusalem. Because as we go on to read the story, we find things like Daniel practices regular days and hours of prayer three times a day. That he constantly refers back to the Torah, meaning he has some means of practicing scripture reading. That he must have spent pretty regular time with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as they stand together in solidarity and unity. Now, the modern word we use for this is the term spiritual formation. The problem is that in some ways, this concept of spiritual formation has been confined to some legalistic formula in order to convince God that you really do love him and to help you be convinced that God really does love you. So you better read your Bible and you better pray every day and you, you better join some community small group. Otherwise, you're just not a good Christian. But what if that's the wrong way of looking at it? What if these practices are actually the key that unlocks thriving in a life, uh, thriving in life, even in the face of exterior pressures to compromise and conform? So this isn't read your Bible or God will be mad at you and you might not get a good parking spot at Walmart. But this is the pressure from the world is immense and downright overwhelming. But here's how you stand in resolve. So to conclude. Resolved exiles cannot compromise. I said this last week, but let me be very clear. That doesn't mean we need to be needlessly antagonistic towards people that don't see the world like we do. Needlessly antagonistic towards the very people trying to influence us. You'll notice Daniel, when he's responding, he's very kind. He goes to the eunuch and he says, hey, can we try it this way? It's not just a sheer refusal. It's actually a refusal with wisdom. So it doesn't mean we should pick up our pitchforks and torches and raid the county square. It means that we stare down whatever the majority opinion may be, and we resolve not to defile ourselves. That we raise and we train children up in a culture of repentance, seeking the face of God. We actually do what the Bible calls discipleship. 
And we establish regular intentional practices that have been laid out from ancient times. We practice spiritual formations. Do you want to rebel against the culture? You you don't need a weapon. You need intentional means of daily practice and you need people to do it with. That's why this is so important. I want to close with, with a story. It's a fascinating story regarding the German church, uh, kind of pre-World War II and during that early stage of World War II. The country was still suffering quite a bit of the turmoils of World War I, and there's this incredibly charismatic man that's starting to kind of arrive on the scene named Adolf Hitler. And he's barreling in with this political momentum unmatched by anyone else. And all of it comes with this constant, ever-present pressure to sign your allegiance to him and follow what it is that he's doing. Now, it wasn't just true for people outside the church. That was actually just as much true for Christians and the churches itself. In fact, a lot of Germans, including Christian denominations as a whole, began to sign loyalties over to Hitler and his political movements. Now, there were a couple pastors at this time that saw this trend and they were really concerned with what this might mean. They, they saw the church falling into what they saw as a theological tailspin. And so they get together and they meet to figure out how are we going to stop this? How are we going to stand against? How are we going to confess faith in Jesus rather than compromising with the third right? And so out of this confession, they birth a seminary built upon faithfulness to Jesus rather than faithfulness to the nation. And they appoint a president, a pastor and a theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, you may not know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer necessarily, but if you ever do go to Bible college or seminary, likeliness is you're going to be forced to read quite a few of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's books. His two main ones are called Life Together and The Cost of Discipleship. He writes these two books as he's presiding over this seminary. Now, as the story goes, some former students of Bonhoeffer or a former student comes to visit him because he's really concerned that Bonhoeffer's not signed his allegiance to Hitler yet. And he knows that if you don't sign your allegiance to Hitler, then there's probably demise waiting for you. So he goes and he meets with his old professor and disciple and mentor, and he starts to try to explain to him why he needs to give up on this whole meaningless movement, because it's going to just result in his death. And what Bonhoeffer apparently does is he, he and this guy, they decide that they're going to go out on a little rowboat and they cross this river where they can stand on one side of the river and off in the distance, they can see planes landing and taking off and flying. And it's a German airfield. It's a place where Hitler is preparing for war and he's doing all of these practices with his air force. There's this looming feeling that Hitler's about to start something destructively catastrophic. And Bonhoeffer points at that and he begins to talk and he says, he, Hitler, is building an army of harshness for war. And Bonhoeffer asks, so what are we building in response? So he points to his little bitty seminary and he says, this must be stronger. And he points to the airfield than that. Bonhoeffer's school only lasted about two years. Some of the students that uh, were there were actually the reporters that got the school closed. And as students faced the decision to either be thrown into concentration camps or sign a loyalty pledge to Hitler, there were definitely quite a few that chose Hitler. But Bonhoeffer himself would go on to be arrested and thrown into one of Hitler's concentration camps where he was executed for defying the nation's leader. And it might very well feel like that school was nowhere near as strong as what Hitler's army was. But here's the thing. It didn't matter. 
Because for God, exile isn't about a numbers game. God doesn't need resolved exiles to be up and to the right. We don't need that metric. God just needs there to be faith because guess what? Hitler's dead. The Third Reich is gone. And Bonhoeffer's incredible influence still lingers across the globe because almost every seminary student is forced to read his things. So his seminary that only survived two years was a stronger place, a stronger school, a stronger institution than a national powerhouse. And I say all that to ask us this question. If he could say this must be stronger than that, are we able to say this must be stronger than whatever is out there? That actually this church has to be stronger. The way we invest in our children, it has to be stronger. The way we pour into discipleship, it must be stronger. The way we practice spiritual formations, it has to be stronger. This is what it means to not compromise. Because if we're to ask the question, what's on the line? The answer is not just a TV series. It's not just a couple little political things here and there. The answer of what is on the line is the very livelihoods of us, yourself, this church, your children. Eternity is on the line. And if we compromise that eternity, we have lost what God desires for us in his church. But listen, this is why Jesus came. This is the whole reason the gospel exists, because it's at the point of the gospel that Jesus gives the declaration. What I need is not your power or your strategies. What I want is your faith. Because that's where I conquer. That I don't need swords to change the Roman Empire. And I don't need guns to change America. I need a resolved exile. Someone that can stand and say, I refuse to compromise because I believe the truth of God. Maybe you don't know where you stand on that today. Maybe you're really still not sure where you stand on this whole Jesus thing. And I would love to talk to you if you're interested in talking more about that. I'll be right here. We can definitely chat. But if you know who Jesus is. And you're looking at a world saying, oh, no, it just doesn't look the same. And I'm so scared about what's to come. Can I just say God's not scared? And if we act like four teenage boys and can resolve ourselves to say we're not compromising, it doesn't mean we have to be jerks. It doesn't mean we need to be hateful or any of that. But we stand on what we believe and we say we believe the Bible is true. And we raise children to believe what the Bible is true. We create a pocket for generations to come. There is no telling what God can do with that. All the while practicing our own form of spiritual formations. So maybe you've compromised somewhere. Maybe there's something on your heart that already is settling into you. You're like, I got to stop that. Man, the altar's open. Come lay it down before God because he wants nothing more to just forgive you of that and set you back into a resolved exile. Maybe you just need to pray. This is your chance to ask God, what does it mean for me to live as a resolved exile refusing to compromise? Father God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your love. God, I pray that as we think through what it means to be exiles in this country to some extent, when it feels like things are just going a direction that we didn't sign up for, God, I pray that you would help us to know and understand what it means to follow you. God, help us to be resolved not to compromise, that we might see your handwork 
in amazing, wonderful ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.